speaking of Godard, yes. this is my new topic for now. This is our, our little <laughs> interlude before we get on to the next film. I went on a Godard binge. He did. Unexpectedly, which was a roller coaster of terror, nonsense, and a little bit of fun. A little bit of fun. Let's, let's explain this. So I think we've been very open about our thoughts about Godard uh, on this podcast. Not a big no. fan. I suspect that most people who listen to this podcast haven't even bothered with the first episode. I wouldn't. And just kind of listen to episodes willy-nilly as to like yeah, what yeah, they like that's to how do I here. Do. Which I think we should probably record a new first episode knowing what we know now. You want us to rewatch? And call it. Call it. Well, I'll title it. Listen to this one first. Okay. And we can pretend to be 2019 Jacob and Janice. Yeah, sure. I think that's a, that's an interesting idea of something we should pursue. That being said, <laughs> there was a bunch of films on the Criterion channel mm-hmm. that uh, were leaving, and a lot of them were Godard films. Actually, this was July was the first month that I watched everything that I wanted to watch that was leaving. Yes, he did. He was very proud. Mm-hmm. Very proud, and also uh, that took a lot of time. It, there's a lot. There's a lot. There was 54 movies watched in July. Is that more than me? And I said. I that know, might be more but I mean. suspect that August will be similar. And mostly because Mike Lee is leaving the yes, Criterion Collection he is. Uh, channel. And I only have two left to see. There's two things for my plan this month. I want to get through Mike Lee on the Criterion channel. And I want to watch all the stuff I bought in the Barnes & Noble Which would sale. be easy to say if you didn't get the fucking Birdman box. That aside, I want to watch everything that I bought. Besides, the I might book, not get through that. This you month. heard it here, folks. Jacob Kaufman does not like being more Bergen. I didn't say that. I just said I might not get through all of it. It's a lot. You paid two hundred dollars. No, I paid like one hundred forty. Okay, sorry, I apologize. That number is way off. Continue. So, our last episode, I think I mentioned that I watched uh, La Chinoise, the Godard film, and I liked it. It was fine. I gave it four stars. It was a bit of communist propaganda that mm-hmm. was both for communism and poking fun at communism. And I felt that that film kind of course corrected me towards what Godard is going for in that I knew he was going for something very specific and I knew it from the get go. Like there was no bullshit philosophical undertones that characters are just shouting monologues of nonsense in a lot of Godard films. Mm-hmm. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like, you, you feel like he's trying to get yeah. at something, but you never know what he's trying to get at. He's more obsessed with how the words sound than what they mean. You're right. La Chinoise felt more like, oh, I know exactly what this means from the get-go. Mm-hmm. I, I don't... I get it. And it felt a bit more liberating to watch a Godard film where, from the beginning, you already have a sense of where what it's trying to do. And I enjoyed it. Uh, you know, with that being said, I... There are two stages of Godard. There's, I'm going to call it, we have classic Godard, <laughs> the beginning from like Breathless to Perot Le Fou, that the first 20 years, the middle stage, which I haven't seen anything from and I don't care about in the min- for the moment. I actually don't know any films released in that stage. And then there's the, I'll call it late stage Godard, which is his more recent stuff when he has moved to digital filmmaking and has released things in the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. The man is still working. Which blows my mind. Why Why was Truffaut the one that had to die early? <laughs> that always upsets me. Truffaut was great. Still upsets me, even though I, I've warmed up to Godard. Yeah. So I'm going to say with certainty, 
Godard is a fine director. That's high praise coming from you. You look hesitant to even use the word fine. He doesn't have a stigma for me anymore. It's now by myself in this battle. No, I don't think you are. I think here's the thing that has happened. Mm -hmm. The lows of Godard have gotten even lower (laughs) in the past month. But the highs of Godard have gotten higher. Okay. So it's I've gotten a bit more of a spectrum. And his newer stuff, the image book, which is just a an hour and a half of I mean this in the most accurate way possible. Nonsense. <laughs> an hour and a half of nonsense. And then there's Goodbye to Language and Film Socialisme. I can see no value in any any of those three films, all released in from like twenty the most recent one, twenty ten was Film Socialism, man. Then the other two were 2019 and 20. It doesn't matter. He's They're new. Movies in 2019. They were so insufferable, so opaque and dense. And everything I, I disliked about Godard was even more like distilled into pureness. This was pure Godard, essence of Godard. And the, I don't know what it was, like some masochistic filming filmmaking uh ritual that i need to put myself through Mm -hmm. or what but i watched them and i won't get that time back in my life (laughs) you're not wrong (laughs) godard is trying to explain something that is so unique to him and so unhelpful to anyone else that you almost had me excited to at the prospect of watching more godard and those i know i know that wasn't your intention but those three movies is overshadowing any semblance of praise you just gave him. Oh, well, I wanted to, to... I started with some praise. Bump that. I started with praise, and then I wanted to kind of ground myself a bit more in the okay. negative. That's fair. And now I'm going to go back to the praise, because I watched Alphaville, A Woman is a Woman, A Married Woman, and I rewatched Pirole Le Fou. Mm-hmm. And I liked all of them. All three? I liked all of them. Oh, and I just, uh, this isn't on this list because I'm just looking at uh, July. I just watched uh, Le Petit Soldat last night, which was fine. That was fine. I didn't hate it, which that was really like the the test of like, where am I at with Godard? Mm-hmm. And if I can watch something that I'm, that I don't exactly like, and I can still just say like, I'm not bored to tears by it anymore. I've moved on from my <laughs> beginning stages. The two I recommend really are A Woman is a Woman, because I felt that was the most like warmth and emotion I've ever felt from Godard. And it felt like an actual human was making something. I liked it a lot. And then we're gonna watch this later. So you're you're gonna this is on our okay. list for the BFI. Okay. We're gonna watch Perot LeFou later mm-hmm. on. And I gave this two stars when I first watched it. When was that? That was a while ago. That was like two years ago. Okay. It is most certainly my favorite Godard, and I might be giving it four and a half stars well, upon dude. a rewatch later on on this podcast. Okay. That being said, there's still like Godard is very distancing as a director, and I find it hard to actually like any of his stuff, even though I am more accustomed to it. And I suppose mm-hmm. this is my way of apology to Godard that you're still an asshole, but I'm okay <laughs> with that now. <laughs> But now you recognize his assholery is part of the brand. He's definitely got a brand. Like Wes Anderson, but not as charming. <laughs> Wes. 
Less German. That's a, that's one way. Of I hope there was something of worth in that little monologue about Godard. My little summary. You you have changed my opinions and worsened my opinions at the same time. And whenever I feel this this sort of conflict about somebody, I'm inherently more interested. So I am more interested. I'd categorize him with Cassavetes. Okay, that's good. That's good to know. Well, I still love a lot of Cassavetes movies, but. You know, you obviously have done your research a lot more. I've literally only seen Breathless and the end of Faces Places. I was so disdained with Breathless, I just didn't care. That's what everybody talks about. So I thought, okay, this is the one, and it's not doesn't necessarily mean mean it's you know reflective of all of his work. That's where I'm like, okay, whatever, fine. Uh, what do we even want to do now? Anyway, Godard, not not too bad. Unexpected Godard rant. Criterion's releasing Parole Le Fou re-releasing yeah I saw that. yeah yeah it's an interesting uh cover well what's our what are we gonna talk about next do you want to talk about a movie or do you want to talk about yes please <laughs> well we'll talk about topsy-turvy Topsy and then we'll talk about something else turvy we'll check in with your criterion purchases how about that Evan? yeah okay sure i'll have to go get them because they're scattered but yes uh topsy-turvy is a 1999 film by mike lee who is just delightful it is about the musical theater duo Gilbert and Sullivan in their creation of their hit play, The Mikado. It is, like most of Mike Lee's movies, it has a, a, an invisible structure to it where it's, there aren't really villains. It, things just happen. There are characters. They do things. And on the surface, you're like, what did that mean? But then... You don't care because it was just so lovely the whole time. And I thought I, I saw this yesterday because ever since watching Naked about a month and a half ago, I've been very interested in this man. I spent most of my quarantine watching his movies. There's still a few that I need to see. But I think after about a day, I can say this is probably my favorite. Naked and Topsy Turvy. Those two. But right now I'm leaning towards Naked because it's just fun. And that's some, that's rare about a period movie, but it's fun. It's a fun movie. <sighs> it's also three hours long. No, well, apparently. Oh, no, I did have notes. They're in here. Fret knots. Found them. I am so excited to watch more Mike Lee movies because <laughs> this film is just absolutely delightful. And it's one of the best period piece films I've seen in a while. It's so good. I was not lukewarm uh, is not the correct term luke great about this film like i was like oh this is pretty great i'm not sure though when i first watched it and then i i spent today uh, while i was working i put the commentary on in the background just kind of listening to it as a, a podcast and as i was listening to mike lee watching it just kind of turning back every once in a while i was like man this film is really nice like, I just, I really like it. And I can't necessarily declare it like any kind of like masterpiece in terms I'm going of like film to. history. I'm going to. But but let me clar clarify on that. Like, it's got so much humanity and warmth and kind of interesting insights in it. I don't know what necessarily is like bringing my opinion down, but it's not a perfect film. I don't know. Like, I don't know how to express this. That's not like a perfect film, but it was so good. It's cozy. So good. Well, I was going to say, I've been, I've been, ever since I started having this obsession with Mike Lee, 
I've been going into his process a lot because as we discussed, his process is interesting. And it was it was specifically when looking at the process for this movie is where I became most interested is because most of his movies, aside from three, Topsy Turvy, Mr. Turner and Peter Lewis, most recent films, um, he he has a process where he just finds actors that he likes. He makes characters with those actors and writes scripts about those characters. Now, those three movies that I mentioned, because they're period pieces and they are based off real people and events, he workshops the actual characters, but incorporates a lot of the real life history into those stories. So he has a sort of foundation for what the story will be. And I thought, okay, that is why I love this, because every character, no matter how small, you completely understand everything about them in the limited time you get with them. All of them. Specifically, I think my favorite characters are obviously the, the duos, um, Gilbert and Sullivan. Sullivan is just delightful. Jim Broadbent and Alan Cortuner, it's just great. It's a it's a great ensemble film. It One is. of the like there are there people say it's a great ensemble film. But this is one where you can say like every actor to the bit part <laughs> to the lead parts are doing excellent work. Well that that's that's a consistent thing I've found through his movies where I'm always like, okay, there are actors that I I I broadly know from things I've seen and other bit parts I've seen in other movies. Jim Broadbent was a big one. Jim Broadbent is prominently featured in three Mike Lee movies. This one and the other two that I saw were Life is Sweet and Another Year. And all three of those movies, every time I watched them, I was like, Jim Broadbent is a really good actor. <laughs> and the biggest ones for me going throughout this whole thing were uh, Jim Broadbent, who's in three of his movies, Timothy Spall, who I only knew from Harry Potter. I'll be honest. He's the rat guy from Harry Potter. I don't even know who that is. I just know he's the right. rat looking fella. And he's in this one. I know he's... him from Mr. Turner and I haven't seen Mr. Turner. <laughs> I haven't seen that one either. I know he's in this one and he um, is in Life is Sweet with Jim Broadbent and he plays the most lovable weirdo. And I was looking at this and Life is Sweet and then I watched a little bit of Mr. Turner and I'm like, Mike Lee has given he has given Timothy Spall to uh, he's allowed him to act in every realm of humanity up across these three movies because he's so great, but he's so different in all three of these movies. And in this one, I love him. I love his musical numbers, both of them. I think he's delightful. And Leslie Manville is also great, who I only knew from Phantom Thread. But she's in this one and another year. Who? In this one, she is, who is um, Leslie Man. Leslie Manville is Reynolds wife. Oh, yes. Yeah. And Reynolds Woodcock's sister in Phantom Thread. <laughs> oh, that's where I recognize her from. Oh, she's I know her from two films and I, I'm going to declare she's a great actress. She's a great actress. But uh, did favorite... you did you notice Andy Serkis? Yes. In here? <laughs> He's got the crazy fucking hair. <laughs> I didn't until I was listening to the commentary. I'm like, wait, Andy Serkis? where but that's all these movies where i'm like oh that's a british actor i know from one other thing but he's amazing in this movie and all those movies i'm like they're great actors i just don't see them do great things um but my favorite scene in this whole movie to backtrack a bit was the scene where sullivan is like at the piano with three of the other actors rehearsing the the lines or whatever rehearsing the music and the music mm. is delightful it's you know obviously they didn't it write it for the movie but the music is always fun and it's not pretentious no it's just kind of simple because when you hear okay this is the story of these you know 19th century english playwrights making their masterpiece you're like okay that could be really boring 
but it's the music it's so fun <laughs> all the time and you could say that's a criticism to be made and i would get it that there's too many musical numbers but they're always fun mm-hmm. i think they're fun and they're short like timothy spall you see two music numbers one at the beginning and when he's that song gets cut you know, you have that like little conflict and then you see the song in the actual premiere and you see different parts of the song. So you can put them together and get the whole song. But since you only see brief glimpses, two halves of it, it doesn't feel repetitive, I think. There's so much to really love about this. And I'd say it's the film in general is it's slowly paced. It is. It is a almost three hour film that kind of takes its time. And I'd say it doesn't have a slump because the whole thing is correctly paced, right? Like it's slow, but it is consistently slow. It's not speeding up or slowing down. It's taking its time with things. And I can't, I wasn't bored. It was just kind of like living and being with all these kind of fun characters in the theater. And my favorite scene was when fairly early on was when um, they're kind of having this intervention with uh, Gilbert and Sullivan where they, yeah, they're at this the, the beginning the first third of the film is this impasse mm-hmm. where they can't gilbert wants to uh, only wants to write these kind of topsy-turvy cocky many magic potions magic elixirs scripts yeah. for sullivan and sullivan was like i'm made for better things than magic potions and bullshit and then doily cart the owner of the savoy theater and the, the woman uh helen i think it's helen his assistant have this kind of intervention of like all right be grow up you two what what is actually going on who's gonna budge on this issue and it that seems kind of like the end of the third act upon rewatching it or sorry the end of the first third of the film because that's kind of like it ends on this finality of like oh neither of them are going to give in and the very next scene is of course jim broadbent's wife gilbert's wife i should say uh, is like let's go to this japanese exhibition and one of the things i love about this film and i think it's just i think it's a staple of all of his films but i'm not sure yet because i need to watch more that there's this really witty way of filmmaking that he has of editing where just the way he blocks actors and the way he actually cuts the film is just kind of funny in and of itself that in that scene Jim Broadbent, uh, Gilbert is very, is down. He's like, oh, Sullivan's not going to write to my music, that asshole. And he doesn't <laughs> want to do anything. And his wife is like, come on, let's go, let's go out. Let's go to this exhibition of, of Japanese culture. And he's like, no, I would not do that for all the tea in China. She walks away, long pause, hard cut. They're both at the, at the, uh, the exhibition. You don't need anything. It's just kind of this fun little cut. No. And it, stuff like that. It's all over the film. The film is littered with fun little little filmmaking details that just made it a joy to watch. I'm going to say my other favorite scene in the movie is when uh, Gilbert Gilbert um, is having his actresses rehearse the dance number in front of the Japanese people. <laughs> and, they're try- <laughs> and they're trying to capture the authenticity and none of the Japanese people know what's going on. And I, I love... I love how earnest it is because it's not, you know, on the whole, the Mikado as it on paper sounds like it could be exploitative, but it's not. It's clear from the beginning. It comes from a very real adoration for the culture that he's so desperately trying to recreate. 
but there's still things that he's just not understanding An ignorant adoration <laughs> yes and that's what's so beautiful about it um like when you know when he gets the sword from the expo and then he hangs it up and then it falls later and you see him <laughs> prancing around his room like a samurai but yeah the, then the, the he has the japanese people walk and they don't know what they're doing so they walk really nervously and then the english actresses recreate that walk and then you see it, it's like you said the hard cut to that walk is then in the rehearsal <laughs> And you see right in front of you that that chain of miscommunication that results in being cemented forever in their in their art. And I think that's just hilarious. I think there's a very interesting discussion to be had, and I'm not sure we're we're going to do that here and now about the it is kind of racist. Kind like of the, the Mikado as a as but it's it's different because it would be like there's one thing if let's say Gilbert and Sullivan put on a, a play about south african tribes no i agree i agree that would be racist and entirely inappropriate because there is like native americans yeah there's there's a power imbalance that is very real and very important whereas japan is kind of its own thing and yeah the ignorant musical of gilbert is not going to affect the japanese people in any meaningful way i agree ever and we can say that with a fact that like uh, no <laughs> japanese person has ever been offended because like this is stupid <laughs> let's move on with our lives well the, there there's a you know completely different mediums but there's these two games that are really like one's called dark souls the other one is a new game that came out called ghost of tsushima ghost of tsushima is a samurai game developed by american developers and dark souls is a game made by a japanese guy and it's a takes it's like a european fantasy whatever and they're both really interesting because you see the way that a Japanese person takes these very Western ideas and makes it their own. And the other way you see a Western company take these Japanese things and make it their own. But because, like you said, it's not like there's no power shift between the East and West here. It's just it's it's humble recreation. And both when both those games came out, like Americans were like, we can't steal their culture. And Japan was like, this is neat. I like this. This is a great interpretation. And the other <laughs> way around, when no one, Americans cared when Dark Souls came out and it was Japanese people recreating whatever. So that's interesting here. And yeah, like well, I said, it's the cultural exchange is important. Great. Yes. But uh, I mean, there is like, here's the great thing about, I think this also goes for all of uh, his work, but Top Sturvy in general is that he's kind of contrasting the kind of beautiful fairy tale world of the screen and the theater with the kind of backstage reality and then even yes. further kind of the kind of like at home reality where people are he has uh Gilbert has an insane family and people <laughs> are on drugs or drinking and there's uh there's a very there, there's one or two scenes that I think that could have been developed on a little further though I know and like why they're there and one of them is Gilbert's father, which is just he's just kind of there for a scene. That scene's so funny, though. Yeah, but it's just kind of there. Yeah, and then it I moves. Agree. The film moves on. Doesn't revisit. There's not like a third scene involving their, his family that I think mm-hmm. maybe needed to round out that plot point. I don't know. It's not really a plot point. It's just an idea point, maybe. Mm-hmm. And there is a, a scene at the very end during the opening night of the Mikado where. Gilbert is out wandering the streets of London, and it's one of the very few "quote unquote" exterior Outdoor. shots in the film. Yeah, 
because yeah. almost the entire the entire film is inside in very contained sets and i mean kudos to the film for making that work i didn't even notice until it was pointed out to me in the commentary it didn't i didn't notice until we had that one shot of the, the outside and the woman approaches i'm like well we haven't been outside this whole time right and that's that's another scene that feels out of place but it it goes when you understand Mike Lee and what he's trying to get at and like these, these, these contrasts of there's a shitty world outside. Uh, people are either avoiding that in their own way or interacting with it. And at that point it's, 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 it adds a little depth and kind of expands the world. And I might've liked a little bit more of that kind of yeah. expansion of the outside world of London, but for budgetary reasons and artistic reasons, I think it's fine. The, the film works as is. It's well, that's the thing is that, not only, you know, is it is it just a great movie? Uh, it really captures the the period well. I think one of the funniest scenes in the movie is the phone conversation. <laughs> because it's like the eighteen. 18- I loved all the the technological advancements because there's the phone and then there's the the inkwell pen. Uh, that was just yeah. great. Just seeing the, the kind of first ink. instances. Yes. Anyway, the phone. Great. They're shouting at each the other. The phone is. The f- yeah, they're just sh- like it's one of those things that are like, oh, phone, new invention. This is very convenient. But here they are <laughs> shouting at each other, <laughs> and no one can hear each other speak. <laughs> and you have the producer because one of them is the producer's phone at his desk, and the whole time I'm thinking, oh, he has a phone at his desk. He must be rich. But then you cut to that shot of him just sitting there, kind of like, like he- the guy does this all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is the second best cinematic phone call after the the phone call in Doctor Strangelove. <laughs> that one's hard to beat. You're not wrong. That one is hard to beat. Um, but you know, it's the the period. But here's the thing: like we've talked, we've mentioned it once or twice, and you're just talking about the period there. In the commentary, Mike Lee very kind of egocentrically says, "This is." the best researched film in the world. And he's not saying that as a joke. He's saying that entirely seriously. And you get the sense from watching it that he's right. <laughs> and the more, like one of the really interesting things about listening to that commentary was all of the things that they actually incorporated from real life. Like how much of this film is based on and is just like a slight tweaking of life. Like the, the sword falling down that's a that's a story that gilbert told it might not have happened but gilbert told that like that was his explanation from where the the mikado came from that Mm -hmm. actually happened in some respect and like the the exhibition he goes to the the call boy at the theater is called shrimp (laughs) great like that seems like it was made up completely but that was real (laughs) the more you look into this film they got actual props that were used by Gilbert and Sullivan or people in that theater. This is an amazingly researched film. And I think there's so much more you can get out of this film if you want to do the research into it, which I'm not sure I have that time right now, but this, wow. yeah, I'm eager for another rewatch. Same. And I, I just saw it for the first time yesterday. And, you know, but the thing that I think is the most, the thing I love most about this movie is that, again, like most Mike Lee movies, there is no villain. There is no setup structural conflict. We need to do this because of this. From the beginning, they're like, okay, we can redo this other play, but you know, we can only do that for so long. 
There's not like a we need a play to save the theater. Everyone's doing fine. It's these are all their own self-made goals, but this movie is just so beautiful in the way that it portrays the creative process. Because this is it's mm-hmm. it's very similar to a film. I was thinking of a lot of day for night. Amadeus is another huge one I thought of. Not necessarily the same content matter, but you know, it's the presentation. But you just see just how so many of these little micro decisions factor into the overall product and how many different people have different says on what's going on it's just a movie that is so in love with the idea of collaboration and creating that even if you're not necessarily a theater person it's hard to not like feel a little inspired by this Mm -hmm. completely different worlds completely different time periods it's just inspiring the film was really great and i loved it and then like the last 20 minutes or the last 15 minutes after the opening night performance of the Mikado really kind of like sealed the deal of like, wow, this is a great film that those last three sequences were just like chill inducing of like, this is, this is like humanistic filmmaking from Mike Lee at, at its best of, of uh, Gilbert. The first one is Gilbert's conversation with his wife and his wife really wants a child. And there's this whole metaphor that was kind of heartbreaking Mm -hmm. and it was wonderful, a great extended long take of acting there. Then there we check in with Gilbert. And then the very last scene is just one of the actresses that we've been intermittently following throughout the, the film. And she just sings this. She has like all this problems with alcohol and stuff. Mm -hmm. And she has a son and she wants to remarry, but she doesn't want to become a widow again. And then she sings like this, this uplifting and this, this song from the play from the Mikado. And it's just like a perfect ending to this whole ensemble film. I just, wow. Well, that's the thing that's, you know, speaking to the, the ensemble nature and all the actors, there's so many different problems going on, so many conflicts and none of them really get resolved, but you understand where it's all going. And that whole, I mean, obviously, you know, Gilbert's wife wants a child. Sullivan feels he's not being challenged enough. Um, That woman is having problems with her son. Timothy Spall is just the most thespian of thespians. You have the one guy, um, the the bald man, I forget his name, uh, the heroin addict. (laughs) For one scene, you see that he's a heroin addict. Do you remember the oyster scene? Yeah, yeah. That happened. <laughs> they did their research. That happened. They got sick off oysters during when they were trying to negotiate their pay. Like what the fuck? Like that, that, that kind of detail. When Mike Lee says this is the best researched film in the world, I I agree with him. I can't disagree. It's I I don't know. I, just, I don't know. This movie is amazing. I love it. It's it's my favorite Mike Lee movie. It's so entertaining. It's so heartfelt. It's so human. Ugh, it's everything I love about his movies. And it's I'm just saying, it, I think it's a masterpiece. I think it is too. I'm just, I'm being a little <laughs> cautious as I usually am. And I just, I also want to say that there, every, I watch so many films. I think I've added at least 200 films. Like watched 200 new films this year, at least. And I'm, I'm always searching for like the next thing that I'm really drawn to that i'm really like inspired by a piece of filmmaking and i think this is this is my next little milestone of of something great that i watched for the first time this year 
Ironically enough, really glad the the only other movie this year that I felt this kinship towards was uh, Colonel Blimp. So Hmm. this English, they sometimes get it right. Just so long ago, which it was. It's still my number one. Well, (laughs) Um, okay. Well, that was topsy turvy. Good film. It's great. It's great. Fantastic. Somehow, a two-hour and forty-minute period drama is endlessly entertaining and hilarious. (laughs) It's great. That smile that Jim Broadbent gives when he gets the idea for <laughs> the Mikado. That's that's great. I could watch a loop of Jim Broadbent slowly smiling. I just Jim Broadbent in this movie, everything he does is funny. His frown He's It's a great character because it's a very dour kind of character like serious character, and then he's joking, and then other people joke, and he's like, This is not funny, you're supposed to be serious. <laughs> It's great. It's a great little contrast there. He's a genius. I love that he's a genius. He's 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 you know he's portrayed as this genius playwright, and then you look at all his fucking plays. It's like magic potion, magic elixir. (laughs) (laughs) And then he can't, for the life of him, see that there's something wrong with writing the same thing over and over again. That's great. Just his face makes me laugh. 